from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 68, 69, I should say, of the <laughs> Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. See, I thought, oh good, I got through the name of the sponsor without <laughs> tripping up. And then, of course, I don't update the um, episode number. Hey, so, Craig, Craig, how are you today? Oh, it, uh, well, I do have to alert you that you got my name wrong. It's I'm I'm not so scary tonight because oh. I'm I'm still fresh off of celebrating the start of Halloween with and Mickey's not so scary Halloween party this past uh, last week. Yes, well, it is mid-August, so of course we're celebrating Halloween. What's funny is is that our we actually have autumn-like weather in California. Well, in the Sacramento area, it's in the mid 80s. Oh, which normally it would be triple-digit weather this yeah. time of year. But uh, if so, yeah, so see, I guess we're all getting into the fall spirit. The Halloween decorations have been out in the stores. Yeah. No, ever so. I, well, and that's the thing. I can't, for the first time in my life, I'm, I am thrown off because we still don't have Halloween stuff in most of our stores around, around my house, at least. Oh, and everywhere here. The spirit stores are opening up. Yeah, we, we do have here. at least one spirit store that I've seen open up. But like in terms of Target and Walmart, uh, the ones closest to my house, they are still focused on like their back to school stuff. And hmm. like it, it makes it very difficult because Kylie and I are like, OK, well, we 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 want to go get our pumpkin spice cereal and we want to start getting our our Halloween stuff and get first pick at the new Halloween decorations that come out. And we keep going back to these stores expecting to see it. And okay. it's just not there. And it's you like. Know- you know where you have to go? You have to go to Lowe's because I went um, to Lowe's yesterday. Lowe's has all their Halloween stuff up, including, you know, how they have their, at Christmas, they have their Disney line yeah. decorations with those, uh, you know, those little um, whirlies. Exactly. You know, whirl emotions yeah. or that. They have Halloween ones now. Oh. And no, I, I never think of going there. For I always well, go there for Christmas stuff because everyone else is sold out of lights and other decorations and no one thinks of going to Lowe's or Home Depot and that's usually where I end up but yeah. well they they run to your local Lowe's because ours is already selling out of all the Disney stuff they only got like of these individual whirl emotions they only got like four of each and they have Nightmare Before Christmas ones and those are gone so how many did and you buy of each? I I missed out on the ones that I wanted. Oh, okay. So I got one that is a Nightmare Before Christmas one because that's sort of the theme I do in front of our house. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but they didn't have the one I wanted, which was a whirl emotion that also had a static. 
in the middle of Jack, you know, up on the hill. Oh, yeah, yeah. They project that as a static. Oh. It's new. And then they have the um, figures, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas figures, whirling around it. Oh, it's really cool. cool. Um, I'm going to post a video of their display um, later on on social media of this because it's cool how they've they've set up like a little haunted house with windows and it shows what all these little whirly motions look like. Did did you offer them money for their floor model? I <laughs> know I would like that. You should. And then and then um, but they still have items in stock. So and then I got one that was it's just um, it's like a lot of the Disney characters in their costumes and stuff like yeah. that sort of whirling around. But the one I really wanted is gone. And then they have. You know, um, Jack Skellington, those giant inflatable things. I'm not a fan of those. Yeah. And Mickey and Minnie in costumes and stuff like that. So if that's what you want, you just pause us and get to your lows <laughs> now because they're probably gone. <laughs> yeah. I uh, see. I in my neighborhood, we have a uh, we do have a Halloween decoration cost. Um, not costume contest, house decorating contest. And uh, it, like, every year now since I've lived here, I'm like, I really want to do it. I want to get into it and just put my effort into it. The problem is uh, I I live in a neighborhood where people that uh, that are big Disney enthusiasts and some of them work at Disney uh, <laughs> and for other creative companies around there. So uh, some people take that kind of magic into their houses and um, th- there's no point in trying to win the contest because I, I just can't compete with some of these people that have garages uh, that are literally just meant to store their decorations yeah. to put up. But I am that's that is my goal one day is to be that person that people come specifically to my house to see how ridiculously amazing it looks. Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. Yeah. So how was the Halloween party? How was Mickey's very merry, very Chris- merry scary Christmas, whatever it is, <laughs> Halloween party? Not so scary. Why? You know, that's that's the difference between Orlando and California. We have to be complicated. You guys are just like it's a Halloween party. It's Mickey's yeah, Halloween it's just party. Mickey's that's Halloween it. party. Yeah. That's it. He invites um, us all in. We're all as welcome as can be. Yeah. Well. So we didn't have our uh, our Walt Disney World edition podcast this past Tuesday when we were trying to speak about it. So I guess I'm giving the exclusive to our connection with Walt listeners first, at least on my opinion of it. Mm-hmm. I just absolutely hated pretty much every minute of it. And oh my gosh, really? Yeah, it, I just everything. Uh, the crowds were the absolute worst crowds i've ever experienced for any hard ticket event and uh i was being told by other people that i work with that they received word from people who worked there that uh they knowingly sold way more than they would on a typical sold out night just because it sold out i guess and then Someone came up with the brilliant idea of, okay, well, let's keep going and not market it as sold out and see see what the reaction is. I don't know if I believe that. That's what they were told. and uh, But I, I could tell you that it felt like that. It was the crowds were just absolutely awful. Uh, starting it this early in Orlando just doesn't work for me. It's, it feels like that was there our night that we went was 103 degrees 
and it yeah. felt every bit of that. Um, the I, I said it way back when I. For me, even though I love uh, Hallow Wishes, and uh, during the Christmas time, the um, uh, whatever the Holiday Wishes—that's the name mm-hmm. of the show. Even though I love those, uh, Happily Ever After just killed them because it is such a beautiful show. Uses all the projections. Uh, these shows just go off the fireworks and the music. And honestly, when it was just like wishes. Hallow wishes and holiday wishes, you know, the 360 fireworks, all that, that kind of bumped up these special event fireworks. But now, in my opinion, not not so much. And Hallow wishes is definitely the weakest of it. I don't I don't really care for the music anymore. It feels feels dated. Uh, they updated our parade a little bit, just little touches here and there. So that was nice. But it, it's still about due for an overhaul, uh, a complete overhaul in my opinion. Uh, and then we had the Hocus Pocus show back again for another year, this time with Hocus Pocus's 25th anniversary. And, uh, you know, I, I commend the show for being entertaining and really, really popular. That being said, it's just, it is not the show for me anymore. It, I liked it the first year when it was new and I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's mostly, even though I love Princess and the Frog, I just absolutely despise how Disney tries to throw Dr. Facilier and everything when they need a villain. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, Dr. Facilier's coming. Betcha he's going to sing uh, Other Side, Friends on the Other Side. And sure enough, there it comes. And it's just like they have so many villains. Why do they just feel like they need to go to the same ones over and over and over again with Maleficent, Dr. Facilier? Just it's it's time for time for some changes. Uh, But then they did add some new stuff this year. If you're coming to to our side for the Halloween party, they added uh, a character, (laughs) multiple characters to the Pirates of the Caribbean live action ones, two in the queue, one in the ride, uh, Gunpowder Pete and... If you think that the name is not creative at all, then that's pretty much the same uh, same effort they put into the integration of having Gunpowder Pete added to the attraction. Uh, Space Mountain, they just turned off all the lights and play a different kind of techno-ish rock soundtrack that I couldn't really hear because we don't have the onboard speakers in right. our Space Mountain, like like you have in California, that you can really hear everything well, um, and we have Ghostly Galaxy yeah. too. With, with so you know, and and it's cheesy, but it's at least it's different. It's fun. It yes. sets the mood for Halloween. Yeah, uh, I agree. And then the final addition for ours was Mad Tea Party. You got a brand new lighting scheme and soundtrack. Uh, the soundtrack I thought was actually excellent. It it really upped the energy in it, and the lighting scheme, for me honestly, it just made it like almost equivalent to riding Disneyland's Mad Tea Party, because that's in my opinion one of the most magical things you can do at Disneyland is ride Mad Tea Party at night under oh, those with the lanterns. Lanterns, yeah. it's just it's just phenomenal, and it this is like the closest it's ever felt to doing that out in Disneyland. So, um, I'm all for that, but yeah, it's for me this year, the party, 
it's always I have to separate like work versus personal. Uh, of course, I have more fun going on a personal basis than I do on a work basis. Uh, but this year, like I, I won't spend a single dollar going for personal. It's just, it, it's not for me. I'd rather take the chance that I can go to the Christmas party on a night that's a little bit chilly and enjoy all the hot beverages and different cookie options that they give you and and the the fireworks and the parade that really put me in the holiday spirit and i i I need that this year because this year's a a year that i don't go home for christmas uh Mm -hmm. we're staying in orlando for kylie's family so i've got to get all the holiday spirit in as many Mm -hmm. places as i can so yeah but sorry that's my opus i'm I'm disappointed about the halloween party that was i always preferred it over the christmas party in many ways, mainly because of the mood, and they yeah. had this horseman. And although I do like, I think I tend to prefer Disneyland's Halloween party a little more. I think because the compactness of Disneyland, it really adds to sort of the eeriness of the lighting and and things that they do for the Halloween party, and 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 and, and the fog on the rivers of America yeah. with the. Uh, um, you know, with with the well, it's the it's cadaver the dapper, dance, cadaver dance yes. floating on there, and things like that. So the compactness really, really just helps out with that party. Agree. So, um, but yeah, but I'm disappointed because I love the Halloween party over at the Magic Kingdom as well. Yeah, man, and, uh, and we. We're going to the Christmas party this year. Mickey's very yep. merry, scary Christmas party. <laughs> but um, so, so I'm looking forward to that because I love the Christmas party too. I like the cookies. Yeah. Now I I I, I do. I I was always a fan of both of them for the longest time. I like the Halloween party more. Mm-hmm. It just it's not. I, I don't think it's the right event for me, especially this mm-hmm. early. Uh, yeah, I, had, I agree with the earliness. Yeah, I had more fun last year when I went a little bit later, closer to Halloween. Uh, so, you know, my, my mind could change on that. My big thing this year, you mentioned the Headless Horseman. Uh, I really want to get over to Fort Wilderness where they're doing our special uh, mm-hmm. our special Headless Horseman experience where it's only like 20 bucks. You get to you get to see the headless horseman, and then they also show you Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And I think you get like a pin with it too, or that might be the VIP package for a little bit more. But regardless, that's that to me is, is something that's right up my alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm well, anyway. Well, hopefully, is you'll get more into the Halloween spirit, and the party will settle down a bit, and they'll sell less tickets. Maybe. to it but um another thing we you know we talked about hey keep an eye out for the lowe's disney's haunted holiday decorations uh a listener um michael alerted me to this earlier in the week uh, life magazine um kids a, a, a magazine is basically a website that's printed on paper and um anyway but life magazine is doing a special tribute to mickey mouse it's called yeah. mickey mouse at 90 and you know we're doing a retrospective on mickey mouse um, you know, these few months. So uh, you might want to check it out. I ordered mine. I said I didn't want to run from grocery store to grocery store or to bookstores looking for it. I just ordered mine on Amazon. Yeah, that's, and, the, that's the easiest way. And uh, Amazon is priced the same that you'll see it at any of the stores. Uh, I know I've seen it at Target. And uh, because I, I leaf through the entire thing at Target, 
I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get this one too. Because uh, I have the Walt Disney one and the Disney Parks mm-hmm. one, so of so course I. I have to complete it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it, but yeah, I, I did see it there, and then I also saw it. If if you're in Orlando, uh, coming here for vacation, looking to pick it up as a souvenir, if you go to any of our Publixes, mm-hmm. uh, and I know they have those all over the state, even into Georgia and all that, so I saw them there too. So they're they're out and about. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, definitely get that. And then take it to the park and have Mickey autograph it. That's so, a great idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and I will be at the Walt Disney Family Museum this Saturday to hear well, actually he's going to be at um Industrial Lights and Magic in their theater, uh, to hear Glenn Keane talk about his experience working with uh, some of the nine old men. So I'm sure I'll be talking about that also at some point. But if oh, you're yeah. there, be sure to say hello. So, well, on previous episodes of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I have expressed our fondness for the realms along the rivers of America at both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. And so, Craig, do you want to sort of recap? Why why do you tend to favor the areas around rivers of America? Why do I? Or mm-hmm. why do we? I Well, we, yeah. Yeah, I, I like it because... Um, of the transportation aspect mm-hmm. of it. Um, and that's just, that's one part of it. But as, as you've heard on a lot of our episodes, like I, I, I love the boats. I, I loved the keel boats back when they were around, uh, canoes, especially at Disneyland. I'm all about the canoes. Um, and, but then also the other forms of transportation that are, that are there, like with big thunder mountain railroad, uh, that's, you know, you're only going on a loop, but it's that same, same idea and same concept. It's, it's, there's, it's constantly moving. It's almost like the, the old ideals of Tomorrowland, a world on the move, but, uh, taken and put in this frontier time or just, you know, depending on where you're at, but specifically in this case, in that, in that frontier aspect. And I, I, I don't know. I just have that fascination with, with that time period, the old Wild West, mm-hmm. I, I think it's every American kid's job to to be obsessed with the pioneer at some point in time and in the last frontier. So that's that's why it is. It's I I tend to favor these areas, but I, I think you're pretty much right there too. Oh, I am, and I also like how it gives it a vastness. Yes, and and the way. Of course, the river curves. It gives it an endlessness, like the frontier is going on and on and on as far as the eye can see. And I like the movement of the river, how it softens the landscape, because so much of some areas of the, of the parks are sort of concrete. And and it, it gives a coolness to it. I also like that, of course, they tend to have more lushness. Oh, exactly. Vegetation around there. And um, so it... It makes it le- it, it feels less like a theme park and, and just feels like it's more natural. Yeah. And everything there is just so much more organic, and that the attractions around it sort of sprung up organically as well. Yeah, that's a perfect description. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and in this episode of Connecting with Walt, we are going to set sail on board Disneyland's Gem of the Rivers of America, the sailing ship Columbia, which is celebrating her 60th anniversary this year. Um, now, in my series, 60 Years of Disneyland, I talked about how Walt Disney used his studio employees, artists, and and, and that he hired 
art directors from other studios to design and create Disneyland. Walt intended for Disneyland to bring his films to life, so guests to the park could become a part of the story and interact with the stories as they never could before. So Disneyland would basically be a permanent movie set. So many of the men Walt hired, like Dick Irvine, Sam McKim, and Bill Martin, came from 20th Century Fox. Their knowledge of creating movie sets and backlots was put to use in creating Disneyland. For example, the Golden Horseshoe Saloon was designed by Harper Goff, and it was based on the Western-themed Golden Garter set at Warner Brothers Studio, and Walt had seen it in the film Calamity Jane, starring Doris Day. He decided he wanted a similar look for his saloon in Frontierland, not realizing Harper Goff, whom he had just hired, was the designer of the saloon set for the film. That's perfect. Yeah. You can't get much luckier than that. I know. See, Walt recognized talent right away. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the Mark Twain steamboat was inspired by the Cotton Blossom River boat of the MGM Studio Backlot, a boat which had been featured in the 1951 MGM remake of the musical Showboat. And the Mark Twain's design was so closely associated with the Cotton Blossom that Walt had actress Irene Dunn, who had starred in a 1936 film version of Showboat, to christen the Mark Twain during the televised dedication of Disneyland on July 17, 1955. So in 1956, Walt started to think about an expansion to Frontierland that would be themed to a village alongside a river. The project was called Rivertown and was designed to be a number of low wooden buildings that would separate the Chicken Plantation House restaurant from the new Indian Village area. And Rivertown would be mostly shops along with a magnetic house attraction. And magnetic houses were popular in the 1950s. These were structures built on a slant. And visitors to these attractions were amazed by visual illusions such as water running uphill, chairs balancing by themselves on their back legs, and billiard balls curving oddly as they um, rolled across a billiards table. Craig, did you ever visit one of these magnetic houses? And they would call them like, uh, they they would give them cute little names, you know, like the mystery shack or, or whatever they might called slanty shack all kinds of things yeah i want to say i did um like i mean i definitely think i would have how long did the one at knott's berry farm stay open till uh it opened in 1954 i don't know when it closed or it did it even close yeah oh yeah okay it did close um see I, i feel like it sounds familiar there i feel like i also saw elements to this at some point growing up, it uh, like I, I grew up in right outside of Pittsburgh, north of it. So uh, we had Kennywood Park, and mm-hmm. I feel like they had something that was kind of similar to this too. But um, uh, yeah, it's I've never been. I, it, I don't have any distinct remember uh, memories. Wow, I don't have any distinct memories of it. Uh, the about the only thing that I do is. Uh, it, the one um, Ripley's Believe It or Not, they have like one room that's kind of set up 
like this oh, that's yeah. cheesy and uh, not uh, not the same, but but still a similar idea. So mm-hmm. yeah, the the memories are there. I'm just not sure if I'm making them up in my head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I, when I was a boy, there were two I visited routinely, and one was the Haunted Shack at Knott's Berry Farm, mm-hmm. which I loved. I, I was fascinated by it. And then the other one, and it's still around, is the Mystery Spot in Santa Cruz, and that one opened in 1941. So, mm. And now, during the design of Rivertown, the ideas for the shops changed over time until the designers decided on shops that might actually be in a mid-1800s Rivertown, including a doll shop, a nut shop, a candle shop, a spice shop, a woodenware shop, and an old map shop. And But... After a time, even the ideas for these shops would change along with the concepts for this area. Now, as plans for Rivertown were being developed, Walt began considering adding a second large ship to the rivers of America. And Walt told a reporter, I'm going to add another one. I've got to find the right kind of a boat, but it's going to be a boat that has to do with our early commerce, you see. It might be Robert Fulton's first steamboat or something like that. I'll make a miniature of it that will carry people. The Clermont. Now, built in 1807, the real Clermont was the first commercial steamboat in the world, carrying passengers from New York City up to Albany. Now, Walt may have considered adding the Claremont as part of his Rivertown expansion because he was drawing, once again, upon inspiration from the 20th century Fox backlot. They had built a Rivertown set and a replica of the Claremont for the 1940 film Little Old New York, which told the story of Robert Fulton building the paddlewheel boat. Now, plans for Rivertown progressed so far that concept art advertising a new area were displayed in the park. So why isn't there a Rivertown today? Well, about a month after the concept art was displayed in the park, research began on developing the small New Orleans area of Disneyland into something much larger that would take over the area designated for Rivertown. And you can probably guess what that became. (laughs) But Walt didn't stop thinking about that second boat. Walt would sit on the patio of the chicken plantation house and gaze out at the rivers of America and dream his dreams for his park. He wanted the river to be busy and exciting. Walt asked Admiral Joe Fowler, the operations manager of Disneyland, to come up with ideas for a second ship. So Fowler traveled across the country visiting maritime museums, conducting research to find the right ship for Walt's River. Now, Fowler recommended the first American sailing ship to circumnavigate the world, the Columbia Redeviva. Why the Columbia Redeviva? Let's take a look at her history. Early authorities claimed the ship was built in 1773 by James Brigg at Hobart's Landing on North River in Norwell, Massachusetts, and named Columbia. 
Later historians say she was built in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1787, and she underwent extensive refurbishment and was later named Columbia Rediviva or Rediviva, which is Latin for renewed. In 1790, she became the first American ship to circumnavigate the globe. And the voyage began several years after the Revolutionary War, at a time when the new United States was still recovering economically from the war. So the Columbia was a privately owned ship, which is why there is no USS before the ship's name, because it was a private vessel and not a United States naval vessel. After sailing around the world in 1790, the Columbia sailed to what we now call the Pacific Northwest in 1792 to open a fur trade with China on behalf of New England investors. During this voyage, the Columbia discovered and named the Columbia River, although I suspect the Native Americans who inhabited the area had discovered the river long ago. And um, the Columbia River runs along the border of modern-day Oregon and Washington. Uh, the ship was ultimately decommissioned and salvaged in 1806. Now, you may have wondered why the Columbia was painted a bright yellow. Well, back in the 1700s, ships could either be oiled down to finish them, which would eventually turn black, or be painted yellow. Yellow gave the impression of a newer, faster ship, which deterred pursuit by pirates on the open seas. So during lunch one day, Walt asked well-known shipbuilder Ray Wallace to draw the Columbia Rediviva, which he did on a napkin, and Sam McKim later created some conceptual artwork of the ship. So on another day at the park, Walt invited the manager of Frontierland, Dick Nunes, to join him at the Chicken Plantation House to survey traffic along the rivers of America. Walt Disney's biographer, Bob Thomas, described this meeting. The Mark Twain was pulling away from the dock. One keelboat was landing at the pier as another departed. Two rafts were crossing to Tom Sawyer Island. And three Indian canoes were racing around the bend. Look at that, Walt exclaimed. Now, Nunes expected him to complain about the congestion. But Walt said, now there's a busy river. What we need is another big boat. When Nunes asked Walt what kind of boat... Walt replied, not just another stern wheeler. This time we need a sailing ship. I think we should have a replica of the Columbia. Did you know that was the first American vessel to sail around the world? See, that's just, it's just brilliant. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, even on uh, like now when you just have the sailing ship Columbia, uh, the Mark Twain and the canoes and every once in a while, you know, having the Tom Sawyer rafts go by, like it's even then everything just like syncs up so perfectly. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone that's on the river knows what they're doing perfectly. So you just, you see that dance kind of happening, the kinetic dance of everything moving in motion. And like, that's, that's today over 60 you know, 60 years into the park, it's all moving freely and flowing like that. So the fact that Walt is looking at it all way back when 
and seeing like, no, it, it's possible to even have that. It's just, it's another one of those moments where it's something very, very simple, but it was his, his vision and it just it has been translated perfectly and it's making people still happy to this day. Oh, I know. I know. It, it, those giant ships just look so majestic yeah. as they go around there. And then you see the little canoes. I, I love photos of the canoes in front of the Columbia Yeah, as it sails around. I think that, those are great photos. And that's, that's part of it, too, is when mm-hmm. even though like you can't sail on the Columbia past the Mark Twain, you know, that they, they come and go at the same time. It's when you are on those canoes and you see, you look up and you see both the Columbia or the Mark Twain and just see the size and scale. Uh, it's, it is really, really awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I, but I, I actually agree with you. I, I think there's something about like looking up and seeing, seeing the Columbia from the waters on a canoe. That's, that's just even more impressive than the Mark oh. Twain. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. Now, work began in earnest on the Columbia. Fowler commissioned Ray Wallace to design and build the ship. The first problem encountered by Wallace and the WED researchers was there is only one known picture in existence of the original ship, titled Columbia in a Squall. Now, Wallace used it, along with research materials from the Library of Congress and blueprints from the HMS Bounty that had been built by the same shipbuilders two years before the original Columbia to design Disneyland's Columbia. And it was believed that many of the shipbuilders who worked on the Bounty later emigrated to the United States and worked on the construction of the original Columbia. So the ship's hull, masts, rigging, spars, and sails were constructed at Todd Shipyards, Los Angeles Division at San Pedro, California, where the Mark Twain's hull had been built a few years earlier. The superstructure was built at the Walt Disney Studios. Uh, Douglas fir, oak, teak, and mahogany woods were used in the construction of the ship. Walt was fascinated by the process of the ship's construction. After Fowler told Walt that it was customary to put a silver dollar under each mast before it was set, Walt personally put one under each of the Columbia's three masts for good luck. The Columbia's 90-foot flat-bottom hull was trucked from Todd's shipyards to the parking lot at Disneyland on February 12, 1958. It was then lifted onto three flat cars by the Main Street Railroad Station and transported to the Frontierland Railroad Depot. The hull was then lifted sideways from the train and hoisted onto the Fowler's Fowler's Harbor dry dock, where the ship's construction was completed by mid-June. The Columbia was the first three-masted windjammer built in the United States in more than 100 years. The ship is a full-scale replica at 83 feet, 6 inches long, and 84 feet high above the weather deck, and carries 10 cannons, as the original did. It was powered by two 150 uh, DC electric motors with two 30-inch propellers and could reach a top speed of 1.3 knots. The Columbia was designed to travel on the same track as the Mark Twain and had the same guide mechanism and allowed for a simulated rudder action. 
The carved wooden figure at the bow of the ship is a woman known as Columbia, the Spirit of America. And an American flag with 13 stars and stripes representing the 13 original colonies at the time the Columbia Reviva sailed flies at the stern of the ship. So the final cost of the Disneyland Columbia was $100,000. The original ship was reported to have cost $50,000 to construct in 1787. I, I, I think that's a reasonable rate of inflation. Yeah, so, I mean, just, just a little bit. Yeah. So. Anyway, um, now for the ship's christening at 5 p.m. on June 14, 1958, Walt Disney, Admiral Joe Fowler, Ray Wallace, and several representatives from the U.S. Navy were in attendance to launch the ship. Walt insisted Fowler dress as a sailing captain of the 18th century, and the Mouseketeers appeared as his uniformed crew. The Columbia was christened by Gretchen Campbell Richmond, who is the wife of Alfred C. Richmond, the Commandant of the United States Coast Guard from 1954 through 1962. Now, Fulton Burley, the Irish tenor of the Golden Horseshoe Review, recorded the narration of Old Salty for the trip around the rivers of America. An old salty provided a folksy commentary, as he called orders to the crew, and recorded background music played a selection of nautical songs, such as Hall Boys Hall, O Johnny Come to Hilo, a Song of the Fishes, Drunken Sailor, A Whale of a Tale, An American Frigate, and Blow the Man Down. As the ship past Fort Wilderness on Tom Sawyer Island, a Columbia sailor would fire two 12-gauge blanks from one of the ship's 10 cannons, and the fort also had a cannon that would fire back. And at the time, the journey around the river took 16 to 17 minutes. I, I think it's down to about 12 minutes. Yeah, now. that's. I see, I wish I could have experienced that at some point when the fort would also mm-hmm. shoot back at it like you know i i love uh, i love being on the columbia when they fire the cannon and mm-hmm. when they catch people off guard with it even though oh. you it's it's very clear it's happening they they make sure you know but still you know there's someone who's not paying attention <laughs> it just scares oh. the bejesus out of them i always jump yeah. no matter what <laughs> so. but, but yeah to have that interaction back and forth on tom sawyer island and uh-huh. and with with the columbia just what a time to be alive. It, it was very cool. and Because, you know, the fort was manned by soldiers. Yeah. You know, and, and they would be up there. And they would be, you know, they'd interact with the young guests. And the, and the young guests, of course, were shooting rifles from the stockades yeah, and all that. And it, it was fun. Yeah. Those are simpler times. Yes. <laughs> now it's too um, violent. Yes, and and we're too worried about children slipping and falling and scraping their knees. Yeah, exactly. I have no, I, I have no idea how my generation survived. <laughs> <laughs> so the Columbia remained pretty much unchanged until February twenty second, nineteen sixty four, when the lower deck was opened as a maritime museum to show what life was like for crew members on the original Columbia. Guests can see where the crew, the first mate, and the captain slept. The first mate and other officers got their own cramped spaces. The crew got a bunk 
bunk and a locker. The captain's cabin at the aft of the ship is much larger than any other sleeping quarters. The captain slept in a larger, more comfortable bed, had a desk to write in his log, and had a small dining table. He also had his own windows to open and look out onto the sea. The ship's mess is in the middle forward, and there's a foundry to do any iron work on. Some of the equipment used by the crew on a regular basis is stored on this deck along the sidewalls. And you can also see a large hatch leading to the lower storage space where cargo for the long haul was stored. Now, During a refurbishment in the 1990s, the masts were replaced and the silver coins placed beneath the original masts by Walt Disney disappeared. So, I was always hoping it'd turn up in the archives, but... um. You think by now Dave Smith would have shown them to somebody or they'd be on display. Who knows? It could also be a thing where it's just in the hands of some private collector and it'll just randomly pop up at an auction and Mm -hmm. hopefully it goes to the right place at that point. Yeah, I agree. Can't trust people. But I do love the entire... You love the entire what? The entire uh, (laughs) downstairs area of the Columbia going down into the lower deck. So it's um, it's very hard if you are a person of larger stature. Yes, Uh, but it's it's well worth going down. I like I I I don't want to even admit this, but I think I wrote it maybe two times before I realized that you could even go down below. And so it's when I finally made it down there, it was it was a pretty neat surprise. It, so. It's it's fascinating. And you think, how tall were these people? When you yeah. look at the bunks and everything. I mean, oh, my goodness. Yeah. But, yes, you must mind thy head as you uh, go up and down. Yeah. It's, in there. And don't let the kids just, like, push you forward because, you know, kids can still run around and get up and down those stairs with no issues. They need to go at an adult's pace. <laughs> yeah. Now, on December 24, 1998, a cleat used to secure the ship to the dock tore loose, striking park visitors Luan Dawson, a 34-year-old Microsoft programmer of Duval, Washington, and his wife in the head in front of their son and grandchild. The tragedy was witnessed by numerous park visitors waiting to board the ship. Dawson was declared brain dead two days later and passed away when his life support system was disconnected. His wife suffered severe facial injuries, and a cast member was also injured. In their lawsuit, the family claimed that Disney failed to train its employee on the proper docking of the Columbia. The dockhand, an assistant manager whose responsibility it was to secure the Columbia, had not been trained on the docking procedures prior to the incident. It was claimed that the skill required for judging the incoming speed of the Columbia is gained by experience only. Disney had eliminated the working lead, which was a vital cast member to ensure proper ride safety. OSHA determined that because of the lack of training was part of training policy, Disney management should have known of its inadequacy. The captain of the sailing ship Columbia had admitted that he approached the dock too fast and was inattentive due to the entertaining of a young passenger whilst docking. 
It was determined a lack of communication between the three workers of the attraction, the captain, the helmsman, and the dockhand contributed to the incident, that the cleat was not properly secured, the Columbia had not been properly maintained and had wood rot, and the use of a nylon rope rather than the original hemp rope provided greater elasticity and breaking strength, which contributed to the cleat being launched into an unsuspecting crowd. Due to this incident, Disneyland later made several changes in the way it operates attractions, adopting bell signals, changing docking procedures on the Columbia, and reviewing and updating all its ride procedures. Disney also brought back lead operators on most rides, an experienced position that had been phased out on many attractions. The Anaheim Police Department assigned a full-time employee at Disneyland to reduce the response time to incidents like this. Although the settlement was confidential, the Los Angeles Times estimated the case settled for $25 million. So, Craig, what does a um, lead operator do on an attraction? That is something that I don't know. Um, in terms of, in terms of with the, the sailing ship Columbia or even, Mm -hmm. um, even with just Disney in general, I had never heard that, um, I, I had never heard really that term besides, uh, with, with like a lead in terms of on, well, on the universal side, we had leads there. On uh, the Disney side of things, you have coordinators, and they are—they're uh, there to help out with any issues. And if they notice anything unsafe happening, then then they are the ones who who handle it. But uh, not not anything um, where like they would never be constantly watching you, just waiting to see if something would happen. It's more like, oh, you know, if. If you just happen to notice that person is doing the wrong thing as you're walking by or, or paying attention, then then that happens. So I, I'm not sure if this was the same kind of idea or if it was something else that was a little bit more hands-on um, mm-hmm. to say. But uh, if it is, that's I would say that's that might be the equivalent of it. But um, you know, it's it, times times have changed, and even even in the five years that I worked in in actual theme parks, I saw a whole mess of safety uh, safety precautions just get stronger and stronger and watching out. So, especially at my time working at Universal at Dragon Challenge, and uh, you know, it's it's very well known now that Universal went like just completely crazy with metal detectors in terms of ride safety because of issues that happen there. So uh, when when safety is a priority, uh, it, a lot of a lot of things start going into play with it. Mm-hmm. So um, in extra and usually almost in all these cases, it's extra safety positions are added to make sure that that everyone's OK. But, yeah, I we need to do an interview with someone who worked back then and get get the details on how much yeah. cast members their roles and positions have changed over the years that would be interesting yeah so like someone that. out there listening yeah. odds are someone is a cast member from disneyland 
or Walt Disney World back in the 80s or earlier. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and we talked in the, in the 60 Years of Disneyland series, we talked about this era of Disneyland. So it would be very fascinating to talk to somebody from that time because, you know, this is called – us Disneylanders refer to this as, you know, the Pressler era. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, as we described it, was when the park was allowed to fall into decay. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, as a cost-cutting measure, you know, in favor of retail. And this is when we saw attractions closing. And this is one of the incidents where, you know, we started to see the turnaround come. Because there were other issues that also happened during this um, time period. So. So now, the sailing ship Columbia generally operates only on Disneyland's busiest days, or when the Mark Twain is not sailing the river. The Columbia usually sets sail at around 11 a.m. and docks at dusk. On evenings when Fantasmic is being performed, the ship, which plays the role of the Black Pearl in the show, will also close at dusk. When the ship is not operating, it is docked at Fowler's Harbor, named, of course, for Admiral Joe Fowler, across from the Haunted Mansion. So, Craig, if given a choice, do you prefer to sail on board the Columbia or on board the Mark Twain? Columbia, uh, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Uh, I, I love the aspect of going down into the lower deck, as we've already discussed, but I, I love that experience, the open-air experience of being just right up on top deck with everyone and it's just i I feel like it's more intimate than uh than the mark twain is so it it does lead to more crowding on there but but that's part of the whole experience for me is, is is being in that that tight compact space as you're making your trip around and then we mentioned like the cannons i still love that aspect of it and um and more than anything else, uh, even though it has changed with Fantasmic now, uh, and now it's Pirates of the Caribbean beach being featured on the the Columbia, like back when it was still the Peter Pan segment of Fantasmic, I, I just loved being able to be on that ship and experience it and being like, okay, I need to I need to see like just how insane it is that there's performers on all parts of the ship just all working in just just perfectly in timing mm-hmm. and all in synchronization together. I know it still happens with the Pirates of the Caribbean segment. I just don't like it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a Peter Pan purist when it comes to that. Not so much Peter Pan's flight, but Peter Pan and Fantasmic was just absolutely incredible. So uh, even even now that that's gone, uh, riding the sailing ship Columbia, uh, thinking back to how that used to be such an important part of that show, one of my favorite parts of it, it, it brings that that memories of it too. So there, there's just there's a lot about the Columbia that makes it special, and it's and for me it's you know I I do have the riverboat here and. In Walt Disney World, it's not the same thing. I, I do have special memories attached to that one, too, just like the Mark Twain. But you, for me, I can only ride the Columbia in one place, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also prefer the Columbia. I mean, when it, how, how often do you get to ride it 
giant sailing ship. And I I also agree that I prefer the Peter Pan version of Fantastic. We've talked about that before. And they made alterations to the Columbia to support the Pirates of the Caribbean segment of Fantastic that I don't like because they're very noticeable and they take away from the historical accuracy of the ship. And um, so I prefer they go back to Peter Pan for many reasons. But uh, the Columbia is just so magnificent and just, it's breathtaking and it's so beautiful in its detail um, that I much prefer that. I prefer sailing the Columbia. But but it's interesting, you know, as you mentioned, the sailing ship Columbia is unique to Disneyland, but a second Columbia was planned to be built for the Magic Kingdom. But the decision was made to build a second paddle wheeler for the park rather than the Columbia. However, there is a holdover of that plan that can be seen at the Magic Kingdom today. The sailing ship Columbia is the namesake of the Columbia Harbor House restaurant at the Magic Kingdom, and an image of the ship appears on some of the restaurant signage. Now, Craig, since you are a fan of the Pixar film, so so do you like Monsters, Inc.? Yes, of course I love Monsters, Inc., so... uh, not Monsters University as much, but right. definitely Monsters, Inc. Okay. Well, well, did you notice that in the film when Mike Wazowski visits a little boy's room to make him laugh, there is a vintage sailing ship Columbia poster above the bookcase near the door as Mike leaves? I have seen that before, yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people. I love going through Pixar films, finding all the Easter eggs. Yeah. Well, there's a lot, actually. There there are several vintage Disneyland attraction posters in this film, and it's believed John Lasseter, who was a Jungle Cruise skipper at Disneyland, added these posters as a tribute to the park he loves. I could totally see that being accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and now there's some fun facts about the Columbia. Um, The Apollo 11 Command and Service Module and the Space Shuttle Columbia were named after the Columbia Rediviva. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. 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 Oh. So so the next time you are at Disneyland, if the Columbia has set sail, be sure you board her for a ride around the rivers of America and go below decks and check out uh, what the life of a crew was like on board that mighty ship, the Columbia, the gem of the ocean. Well, now it is time again for this week in Disney History Quiz. We are going to use the same format as we did in last week's um, episode, where it's just sort of going to be me posing some questions to Craig and seeing how well he does with his knowledge. Yeah, and I don't feel as confident this week as I did last week. And if you remember last week, I was not confident at all. So, um, So... I'm nervous. <laughs> well, maybe that means you'll do better because you're less confident and so you'll do even better. I can only hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so this is for the week of August 25th. So, uh, so we'll start with that date. So, Craig, what attraction based on a Lucasfilm franchise is dedicated at the Disney MGM studio on August 25th, 1989? See, I, I want... To believe that this is straightforward, um, 
But now you have me questioning myself, so it's only one of two things. It's either Star mm-hmm. Tours or it's, uh, or it's um, the Indiana Jones stunt show. Uh, Could be. Yeah, I'm, I'll just go with Star Tours. Okay, well, you know, you had a 50-50 chance, and you got it wrong. <laughs> oh. It was the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. It was dedicated at the Disney MGM Studios of Walt Disney World on this date. It is the first theme park attraction to use a computer-based show control system in conjunction with a programmable logic controller system to trigger control and sequence complex live events in real time. In many cases, controlled by the actors. The 30-minute stunt show recreates some of the most thrilling and heart-pounding moments from the Indiana Jones films. And I'm hoping someday they're going to change that up a bit. Um, I I don't mind if they change it up as long as they don't change it up by uh, making it the Indiana Jones uh, Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull, (laughs) yeah. yeah. We were right there. Same yeah. idea. Although it would be fun that, like, if they launched a guest in in, in, a, in a refrigerator across the stage or something. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, August twenty sixth. Henry Dirks is born in Liverpool, England, on August twenty sixth, eighteen o six. He will grow up to become an engineer. He is considered to have been the main designer of what special effect used in Disney theme park attractions. What year was he born again? 1806. I'm going to say Pepper's Ghost. Very good. That is right. And the Pepper's Ghost effect is named after John Henry Pepper, who implemented a working version of the device in 1862. And, of course, Pepper's Ghost continues to be used in theme parks today, most famously in the Haunted Mansion, or as we discussed in the last episode, um, Pinocchio's Daring Journey. Yeah. Good guess there. I just did the math. Made sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, August 27. In uh, which Walt Disney film had a lavish world premiere at Groman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood on August 27th, 1963? Oh, um... This should be easy, but it's not... For some reason, um, I genuinely, and this is me being a really bad Disney fan, I can only think of two premieres off the top of my head at the Chinese Theater, and that's because they were both featured on the outside of um, of <laughs> the Great Movie Ride, and that mm-hmm. was the Mary Poppins, of course, and then also the Jungle Book, and I know Jungle Book was 67 mm-hmm. because that was after right after Walt passed away and Mary Poppins was 64 and because of that I can can you give me a hint was it animated it it could have been I, I I don't know. I genuinely it, don't know. It actually, it was Mary Poppins. It had its world premiere. 
1963? That's that's what I've got here. I went, did I hit the wrong button? <laughs> I I am a hundred percent positive it was sixty four. Now that you're saying that, I'm thinking the same thing. So I am going into my little re question archives here. Do 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 do. And you know what? Oh, I know what I did. You're right. It is sixty four. Okay. Then now I, was, I don't feel so crazy. <laughs> I, when I was looking at my notes, is because I was fascinated by what also happened on this day in 1963. So, well, so I did. No, you were right. It was 64. And so, because I was thinking, you know, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking of when I saw it. I said, I saw this in 64. So, um, anyway, yeah, it was. It was. Sorry about that. No, you're. So hopefully, hopefully, you all caught that out there. So, yeah, it was Mary Poppins, and some of Hollywood's biggest stars are in attendance. Of course, this won multiple Academy Awards, including, um, you know, Julie Andrews won Best Actress, you know, and she was there along with Dick Van Dyke. It also won Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Song, and Best Special Visual Effect. Um, there, after the screening and a five-minute standing ovation, which I'm sure um, the the <laughs> the poor um, the, the the poor uh, author of the books was horrified by. Yeah, <laughs> the audience moves on to an elegant party hosted by the Technicolor Corporation. So, anyway, so for August twenty-eighth, what imaginary marvel is introduced at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles on August twenty-eighth, two thousand and three? Oh, um, the Los Angeles Museum of what? Sorry, it is the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. Okay, in two thousand and three. An Imagineering Marvel. Marvel. Huh. Wow. Well, I just am, I'm, I'm plain stumped on this one. I don't even and, know what to think of it. And I think you may have seen it, even. Really? I think you might have. Okay, well, you're just going to have to give it to me on this one, because I, I don't even know what I would venture as a guest, okay. being in a history museum. Yeah. Lucky the Dinosaur, the first oh. audio animatronic figure to walk freely and interact with park guests, is introduced at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay, so you, you got me there. I have, I've met Lucky three times yeah. in my life. So yeah. once he, actually at Animal Kingdom in his right uh, setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is um, impressive. And he's much larger than I thought when I met him. Oh yeah, no, it's yeah. it was daunting. I mean, I was when I met him in at Animal Kingdom. I must have been thirteen ish, right around that age, and uh, and it was just as just as massive then uh, as it was when I saw him later again as an adult. And I'm actually looking. I always have um, I have my lucky Imagineering exclusive pin up on my pin board right in front of my computer ah. all the time so it was uh when when kylie got to meet him for the first time she was just so taken aback that yeah had to had to get a pin of him oh cool 
Okay, August 29th. British children's author Mary Norton passes away in Devon, England on August 29th, 1992. What 1971 Disney film was based on two of her children's books? I believe, and I could be wrong on this, um, is... Is that Bedknobs and Broomsticks? It is. Okay. Right. Right. That film was based on her first book, The Magic Bedknob, or How to Become a Witch in Ten Easy Lessons. That was published in 1943, and also its sequel, Bonfires and Broomsticks. Okay. See, I I just guessed based on the year on that, but I actually know her. um, uh, I I know her from The Borrowers. So. Mm -hmm. That's that's the main one that I know. Okay, yeah. uh, so see, you're doing very well here. Yeah, okay, so minus lucky. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> August 30th, the first comic strip devoted entirely to this Disney character debuts in newspapers on August 30th, 1936. Which character made their comic strip debut? Hmm... That is a tough one. I'm guessing it's one of the Fab Five. And I could be wrong on that, too. So it's really just going to be a wild guess for me. I'm going to say Goofy. No, no, it no. was actually Donald Duck. That was yeah. that was my first inclination. And mm-hmm. I just... Donald Duck was around before 36. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, he would have been in a comic before then. He was, but he had only appeared in the Silly Symphony Sunday pages. This one, it was, it was, they devoted a strip to him. And then he got his own daily strip in 1938. Okay. Well, well, I, it was in my head. I I had thought of it. I just, I changed my mind at the last second. So I'm giving myself an honorary tap on the shoulder. For that one what is cool is all of these strips are still running when i was a boy there was a mickey mouse one there was a donald duck one um there was a uh there was a scamper one which of oh, course wow. was the puppy of lady and the tramp and there was well scamp i think was his name and then um and then there were serialized um comics sunday comic strip versions of whatever disney film was out so you would have all of those in your your newspapers. That's so cool. So, um, yeah, yeah we, it was. We had every once in a while, I, I don't know what the politics behind it was, but every once in a while we would have something uh, Disney and ours pop up. But it would be like it, you would expect it on, only on Sundays, and you would expect it, and then out of nowhere it would just drop out and it would be back to your your normal family circuses, Garfield, mm-hmm. all of that. But, um, it, yeah, I, I really, I, I really did. Um, I, I, I really did enjoy the one book that I had about Disney comics and getting to, to read some of those because it, they were neat. So I wish I had those growing up. Yeah. 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 It was fun. And, and it was a way you kept, did the Disney magic alive because it was a little harder in those days to do it because the movies only came out every few years and Disneyland was a treat to go to yeah. not like every people go every day or every weekend and um, 
you, and you did have, of course, Walt on TV every week, so that was nice. Yeah. But anyway. okay, uh, this I think this is our last one. Yeah, August thirty first, nineteen forty eight. On that date, Walt Disney shares a memo with Disney Studio artist Dick Kelsey, describing ideas for what project. August 31st, 1948. I would assume that would be for the Disneyland project, but I could be wrong. Well, you, you're sort of correct. He shares a memo with Disney studio artist Dick Kelsey describing ideas for an amusement park, which Walt calls Mickey Mouse Park. Um, Walt and Ward Kimball have recently returned from a trip to the Chicago Railroad Fair and Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. And Walt has many ideas, including a main village with a railroad station built around a village green. It is one of the earliest detailed descriptions of an amusement park concept that will ultimately become Disneyland. So very good. Yeah, not too so bad. I think we'll, we'll count that one as, as a correct one. Yeah, I then. I'll give myself a half a point on that. But that's it. <laughs> okay, well, but I'll give you one and a half points for catching the, that 1963 one. Because I got caught up in reading about Harry James and his orchestra performing at Disneyland on the same date in 1963. So I had that in my head. <laughs> See, and I was here, I was saying, okay, well. I'm going to get to find out what happened on 1963 next year when we did this segment. But now, yeah. now you can't use it. No, no. And, and it, was, it was like, it's nothing that is really like history of trivia quiz noteworthy. It's just yeah. that I remember when they would have the, the jazz performers at Disneyland and they would perform like, you know, at the Carnation um, Gardens mm-hmm. and, and they would perform on the Mark Twain because the Mark Twain would would try you could ride it at night yeah and then they would be on the bow of the mark twain or sometimes even within the mark twain and they'd be dancing and they'd be serving the mint juleps on on board and and uh, you know the the kind that they serve you yeah know, that sounds at, it was just fun it was uh, it was a lot of fun and and to see the mark at night to see the mark twain going around rivers of america and and hearing all the jazz coming off the ship i mean it was it was really magical that's why i love disneyland so much at night oh and then you have i mean you look at it here though in orlando we don't even have anything happening on rivers of america at night and we still don't get the liberty bell to run at night so yeah that's surprising but what surprised me was that you don't really have anything on the rivers of america no. I mean, there was no narration. There's no. You have Beacon Joe is sort of there, and then, um, but there's no. There's no. You know, we have a lot of activity and critters on ours. We and, have relaxation. Yeah, yeah. I was. I'm really surprised they didn't transfer the in a, a, a similar experience to the Magic Kingdom. I'm. I. But that's where I can appreciate both of them. So mm-hmm. I like the tranquility of ours. Versus Disneyland's, but Disneyland's is also incredibly amazing because of, again, that that kinetic energy that everything's just constantly moving. And even as you're moving past, you're seeing other things happening and the amount of critters and, and natives that are all around there. You know, we, we have a little bit, 
but just not on that same level. So mm-hmm. just two two very different experiences, but each each of them special. That's true. That's that we can say about both of the parks. Well, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including um, the books Walt Disney, an American Original by Bob Thomas, Disneyland, the Inside Story by Randy Bright, Disneyland, the Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, the Disneyland Story, the Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt's Dream by Sam Genoway, and Secret Stories of Disneyland, Trivia Notes, Quotes, and Anecdotes by Jim Corcus. A couple of articles were interesting. The Orange County Register Disneyland Ride Review, Sailing Ship Columbia and Maritime Museum by Mark Eads, and Pioneering Days of Yesteryear Come Alive on the Sailing Ship Columbia Fact Sheet. And that's by DisneylandNews.com. Uh, some interesting websites you might want to check out the Disney History Institute, Mouse Monthly, WikiWand, and the Disney Wiki. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners find you on the Disney network of shows? As always, you can find me on the Walt Disney World edition, the Universal edition, the best and worst of Walt Disney World, the Dis Daily Fix, and always on Instagram and Twitter at Teleclaster. Michael, what about you? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling. That's, check out the page that has the Connecting with Walt banner. Because my the other page that you all are friending, you know, asked to be friends on, I don't put anything Disney on that page. <laughs> Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling that is. And, of course, you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectWalt. Check out Craig dressed up as a pirate. <laughs> on there. <laughs> if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 